Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Will you turn to Revelation chapter 2 with me this morning? We'll continue our our study through uh, this final book of the Bible. And we're on the second church that Jesus had John write a letter uh, to. He's got John writing a letter to seven different churches um, with messages for them. Each one of those also a message for us. Each one of the letters ends this way. Let him who has an ear to hear, hear what the Holy Spirit says to the churches. So it's not just for that church. It's for all seven of them. And it's for even us 2,000 years later here at Dublin First Baptist Church. And so this letter here in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, it's addressed to the church in Smyrna. Uh, Smyrna was about Oh, I'd say 40, 60 miles north of Ephesus. That's what we studied last week. It's on the coast of what is today uh, Turkey, where Scott and, and Mary once uh, lived when he was in the military. Uh, it's currently known as Izmir. And it's interesting, unlike any of the other six churches that Jesus is going to address there, there are still gospel preaching churches in Smyrna today. Not necessarily true of the, the other ones. Um, sometimes there's not even a city there. It's just ruins. And... Um, It was a city that at this time, extremely loyal to the Roman Empire. There were pagan temples throughout Smyrna uh, where idols would be worshipped. But the largest temple in the whole Roman Empire was here in this city. And it was dedicated to worship the Roman emperor. At the time John is writing this to these churches, uh, his name is Domitian. And it's not just a bunch of trivia I'm giving you this morning, so maybe you'll get an answer right on Jeopardy someday. Uh, everything I've just told you about, uh, as far as the city of Smyrna here, it had serious implications on the Christians that, that lived there. See, under Domitian, emperor worship was mandatory. Even under, in Jesus' time, 60 years earlier, that was going on. Now it's mandatory. You don't have a, a choice. Once a year, every single person in the city of Smyrna, they'd be required to take a pinch of incense, put it on an altar, and, and proclaim, Caesar is Lord. Would that be a problem for a Christian? Yeah, yeah definitely. And when you did this annually, you were given a certificate stating that you did. And that certificate was necessary uh, if you would like to be employed anywhere. It it was necessary if you wanted to enter the city market in order to buy groceries to feed your family. Really anything you wanted to do. So a very tough environment for these Christians in Smyrna. And this is going to all make more sense with what Jesus is about to tell them here. Revelation chapter 2, let's read verses 8 through 11. Jesus says, Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead, and is alive. Jesus says, I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Jesus tells them, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you might be tried. And he shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, 
and I'll give thee a crown of life. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to understand what Jesus is telling us here because he's telling, uh, he's got some principles here for us just as much as he did for Christians in the church in Smyrna 2,000 years ago. Some of the things that they were facing, we face. We, we're blessed, Lord, to live in a country where we have the kind of freedom to worship you that we're enjoying this morning. I don't know that that will always be the case. I, I know that right now there's places in this world where Christians are gathering where um, it's a lot more like what we just read here about the church in, in Smyrna. That that's their reality. And God, I know that there are fears and anxieties and worries that come into our lives from different things. And your, your word to us is to fear none of those things. God, I pray that we would fear you. When we fear you, it tends to banish all other fears. May that be our testimony. Speak to us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, I had told you last week for the next six weeks or so, the outline's probably going to be just about the same because all these letters that Jesus writes to these churches, he follows a very similar structure. They begin with a commendation. Uh, but before that happens, Jesus identifies himself as the one who's addressing them. And he tells them what they're doing right, a commendation as the church. Jesus says in verse 8, though, he's identifying himself. He says, unto the angel, we've learned that meant to the pastor, to the leaders of that church um, in, in Smyrna, right? These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. And once again, if you've got a red letter Bible, you can tell who's talking there. But even if you don't, we know who's talking uh, because Jesus said those very same things about himself back in chapter one when he identified himself to John. He said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last. I am he who was dead and is alive and I'll be alive forevermore. And he's identifying himself to these Christians here. Once again, pulling language from his description in chapter one. And he reminds them, I am the first and the last. I am the Alpha and Omega. The first and last letters of their alphabet at that time. He's saying, I am everything that you need. And you are complete in me, Christian. And he's the one which was dead, but now is alive. And see, when Jesus identifies himself, he doesn't say the same thing. He identified himself different to the church in Ephesus. He'll identify himself a little bit differently to the church at Pergamos, Thyatira, Laodicea, Philadelphia, so on and so forth. And he does that because he's identifying himself uh, in specific ways that they need to be reminded of who Jesus is for them and what they're going through. They need to be reminded of who God is for them in Jesus in regard to what they're doing right and, and what they need to work on and what Jesus is going to command them to do. And, and you and I, we need to be reminded of who Jesus is for us. That's one of the main reasons I wanted to go through this book. If you remember, I think it was about a month ago, we started this book in chapter one. And what is the book of Revelation all, who is the book of Revelation all about? Jesus Christ, right? It's the revelation of more than the Antichrist, more than the Armageddon. And it's going to tell us about those things because that plays into it. But this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we go through this book together, and it's our prayer that we, we get a stronger, more permanent burning into our hearts glimpse of who God is for us in Jesus. And then here's the, so here's the commendation. It's going to come right on the heels of Jesus identifying himself. Verse 9, Jesus says, he compliments them by telling them this. I know your, I know your um, works. 
It's a lot like Ephesus. Here's a busy church. They're, they're active serving the Lord. I know your works. But he also says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty, but thou art rich. And Jesus says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they're Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. So this is not just a commendation. It's not just a compliment. Jesus, what Jesus tells them here, uh, it's surely a, a source of great comfort for these Christians in Smyrna because Jesus says, I know thy works. I, I know your faithful obedience to me. I know your faithful service to me. And Jesus says, I know your tribulation. And I know your poverty. He says, I know how you are suffering right now because you've been faithfully obedient to me and you're faithfully serving me. Isn't it a comfort to know that Jesus knows everything about us? What we're going through? And we sang that truth in a couple of different songs this morning. And please realize um, the comfort here is stronger because not only does Jesus know, he's omniscient. Of course he knows. He knows everything they're going through. He knows everything you're going through this morning. But Jesus actually knows it on an experiential level, not just that he's omniscient. Jesus went through it himself before they did. The Greek word translated here is tribulation. Uh, it, it literally means pressure. You're under pressure. These Christians in the church in Smyrna, they were under intense pressure. In the Greek language, it has the idea of a grape being crushed in the wine press. Did Jesus know what that was like? Oh, yeah. Do you remember where he prayed before he went to the cross? In the Garden of Gethsemane? Do you remember what that was actually used for? It was an oil press. It was a place where they would crush oils or crush olives to get the, the oils. And Jesus says, I know your tribulation and you're, you're under pressure. And I know your poverty. And those two things were tied together for the church in Smyrna. It wasn't just that, okay, you're going through a tough time, you're enduring difficult circumstances, and you're poor on top of that. No, you're poor because of the difficult circumstances that you're going through. They were being persecuted physically and otherwise. But one of the results of their persecution was poverty. There's two Greek words used in the New Testament to describe uh, poverty or being poor. One is panea. I mean, it's like you're struggling to eke out a living. You ever been there? I have, right? where there's a lot of mac and cheese, ramen noodles for a meal. You're struggling to eke out a living, but that's not the one used here. The one used here is Jesus says, I know your poverty. I know your Tokia. And, and that means you got nothing in this world, completely destitute. You, you got what you're wearing. That's it. Here in Smyrna, Christian moms and dads had to make a real life decision. Am I just going to go with the flow? I'm going to take that little bit of incense and plop it on the altar and say Caesar is Lord and be able to get groceries to feed my kids or I'm going to be faithful to the Lord. Dad's had to decide, am I just going to cave in so I'll get that certificate and I can get a job that pays the bills or will I take a stand for Christ and boldly proclaim no way. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus Christ alone is Lord. And what does Jesus tell them in parentheses right after saying, you're, you, yeah, you're destitute? He says, but thou art rich. <laughs> what does Jesus mean? I, I mean, try to put yourself in the, the church of Smyrna's place. Rich? It sure don't feel like it, Jesus. We aren't rich. You, you yourself just said we're Tokyo. We're completely destitute. That's what you said you know about us. Well, I believe what Jesus means here by telling them that they're rich is that they have the riches of his inheritance in the saints. 
as God's word says in Ephesians 1.18, the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ, as God's word describes in Ephesians 3.8, the riches of the glory of Christ, the mystery of Christ. It's Christ living in us, his Holy Spirit. That's what God tells us we have in Christ in Colossians 1.27. And listen, that is no second-rate kind of wealth. It is the most important. Amen? It's, it's the most eternal. Uh, we just sang it. I'd rather have Jesus than any of that. <laughs> so yeah, I'm rich even though I'm Tokyo, according to this world's standards. And I looked out at this church this morning. Hey, if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, this sanctuary is filled with rich people, eternally wealthy people. Now, following the commendation here in verse 9, Jesus also tells them he's aware of something else. He says, I know the blasphemy of them, which are Jews and, and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. So what is Jesus' message in, in that right there to them? Well, Smyrna had a fairly good-sized Jewish population. And... Um, if you remember from our study through Acts, it was often the Jewish religious leaders in the various cities that Paul went to, they were the ones that were stirring up trouble, riots, persecution of, of Christians. They had rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah, and so, of course, they rejected those who are his. They had killed Jesus Christ, and they had desired to do the same to those who are his. And what Jesus states here is really just what God tells us in Romans 9, 6. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Those Jews who had rejected Jesus as God's promised Savior Messiah, they might be ethnically Jewish, but spiritually they had cut themselves off from God for a time. That's what God tells us in Romans 9 through 11. They might be going to a synagogue, and they might think that they're worshiping God. What does Jesus call it here? It's a synagogue of Satan. You know, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And Jesus calls their form of worship and their rejection of him as Messiah here. He calls it blasphemy. And under great persecution and great poverty, these Christians in here in Smyrna, they're commended by Jesus for their faithful obedience and uh, service to him. Now, let's get to the criticism. Most theologians and commentators say there is none, and I'm, I'm, I would agree with them for the most part. Uh, so the second point will be a, a shorter one. I don't think it's a criticism like we have back in, in the first part of chapter 2. Definitely not a criticism like we'll see with the rest of the churches addressed in, in chapters 2 and 3. But I do think there might be at least a hidden warning. And we find it in the beginning of verse 10. Jesus tells these Christians he's just commended. He says this now, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. All right, and if we take that fear none, that, that don't fear there, and if we go to the original language, in the Greek, it's in the present tense. And why that, why that makes a difference is we might not always understand our English language, but when it's in that tense of the verb, it's describing a, a continuing action, something that's happening repeatedly, it's already been happening, or that's in the process of happening. I only found one English translation out of, we have about 45 English translations. You, you might like, oh yeah, King James, New King James, ESV, CSB, all that. There's like 45. There's one, it's called the Weymouth New Testament. It's actually a kind of an older one. But they put it this way, stop fearing. That's literally what it is in the Greek. Stop fearing the things which thou shalt suffer, which indicates that they had been fearing them. And who could blame them, Right? From a human perspective, I mean, as a mom or a dad, it would be perfectly normal to have some serious anxiety 
about how you're going to feed your family and still remain faithful to the Lord. And God promises them here something. Do you love God's promises? I do. We love most of them anyway. Look at what God promises. There's some pretty intense suffering that's coming. They had already been experiencing it. It's going to get worse before it gets better. That's what Jesus promises. There's imprisonment ahead. And let me tell you something about imprisonment in the Roman Empire. It was not punitive or corrective. See, we put people in prison uh, as punishment or to correct behavior. It's called the Department of Corrections. Whether it does that or not, that's our intent. The Roman Empire didn't do that. They were not going to be paying for that. (laughs) Um, See, if you were in prison... Um, you were not, there was never going to be a release from prison to go home unless you were found innocent. You were in prison awaiting trial, and there was two options. Innocent, or you'd be sent to the arena to provide entertainment, and probably not for long. Now, would you fear that? I would. Would you fear that for your wife or, or your kids? That's a very normal human reaction, and Jesus tells them here, stop. Stop fearing these things that you're about to suffer. Why would Jesus tell them that? Um, and, and given their circumstances, and he gives them this constructive criticism. I, I think about what I, Charles Stanley at one point, he said this, fear stifles our thinking uh, and our actions. Allowing fear to reign in our life, it creates an indecisiveness that results in stagnation. There's no way you can grow as a Christian. There's really no way you can remain faithful as a Christian when you just let fear hang out and you don't do anything to address it. How are they supposed to do what Jesus just asked? Stop fearing the things you're about to suffer. How are they supposed to do it? I mean, Jesus knew that they were being fearful. He knew that it was going to inhibit their growth in faith, their walk with the Lord, their ability to remain faithful. Um, Not being in control often is the perfect environment for fear to take hold. But what has Jesus reminded them of? When he identifies himself back in verse 8, I'm in control. I'm Alpha and Omega. I'm the first and the last. I'm he who was dead, and, and I'm alive forevermore. And this brings a peace when we understand that. He says, I am your everything. That's how he identified himself. I am he who was dead, and now I'm alive. I conquered death for you, and by faith in me, so will you. In me, you have eternal life. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, that we are not to fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather we ought to be in fear of the one who's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And there's a simple Christian truth that's relevant here. When you fear the Lord, it does banish all other fears, even the most extreme ones like death. We can flip it. That's, I suppose, a positive side. The Puritan preacher William Gurnell said, we fear man so much precisely because we fear God so little. Now, I don't believe this still, I don't believe it falls under the category necessarily of criticism, at least in the same way as Christ addresses the other church, but it's definitely a warning. It's a warning that comes before the commandment. And really, the first commandment was in that warning. Fear not. Don't stop fearing those things which thou shalt suffer. But here's the next one in verse 10. He says, behold, look, hey, pay attention here. Behold, the devil is going to cast some of you in prison. We already addressed what the probable outcome of that was going to be for these Christians. And why is the devil doing that? Why does the devil want to put them in prison? Well, obviously, stop their testimony. 
stop them from doing what Jesus commended them for doing back in verse 9. But why is God? Why is God allowing this? Because Jesus says, he's telling them here, this is part of my plan for you. You're gonna, the devil, the devil's doing it, but it's not outside of my control, not so, outside of my sovereignty. The devil's going to cast some of you uh, for, into prison for 10, for 10 days, right? Why is God allowing this? Well, look at the next phrase. That you may be tried. That you might be tested. God's doing this to test your faith, Christian. And then Jesus says this, you shall have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give thee a crown of life. Now, I've told you all before uh, this, this is my testimony, um, when we were going through, I think it was First Peter, when I had Andrew read, when I first became pastor here. I think that was the first book of the Bible we went through. But um, something I learned when I was going through various difficult, extremely difficult, and definitely anxiety-inducing, fear-causing experiences in the military, sometimes in training, sometimes in the use of that training. I, I remembered, I learned this. You can make it through just about anything when you know there's a purpose in it and when you know there's a period to it. As a Christian, you can make it through just about anything. And God gives both of them, both of those things. He gives them to these Christians here and he gives them to us this morning. He doesn't just say, hey, quit fearing, be courageous, have boldness as a Christian. He gives them the purpose of why he's allowing them to go through this, the purpose in their incredible suffering. It's that you might be tried. It's that you might be tested. That's a good thing. God's word tells us that it produces patience and endurance and godliness in our lives. God uses this kind of stuff to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. You know what? That's what the apostle Paul said he wanted more than anything in life. Philippians 3.10. He said that I might know you, Jesus, that I might know him. Amen. That's what we all want, right? To know Jesus, that I might know the power of his resurrection. That's what we want for sure too. Can't wait till I have that eternal life, that eternal body up there. Hold on, Paul says this, that I might know the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable to his death. And we might think, hold on, Paul, I'm not so sure I want that. That's what every Christian should want. You want to be like Jesus? Do you want to be like Jesus? Do you want to follow him? Do you want to be made just like him? I hope so. And God gives these suffering Christians here, he gives them the purpose in their suffering. That you might be tried, that you might be tested. I'm going to use this to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. And then he gives them the period, 10 days. Well, that's pretty specific, isn't it? And you might be thinking, well, you know, Jason, I, I could overcome any suffering God sends into my life, Satan sends into my life. I could overcome it if I knew it was just going to be uh, 10 days long. Um, but remember that the alleviation of their suffering was likely through death but then also resurrection to eternal life. And I know some of your stories, I know some of your situations, I know the suffering that some of you are going through. And we'd have to be honest, probably nothing quite to this level. Uh, but it's suffering, nonetheless. But listen to me, God has a purpose in it. He does. He has a purpose in your suffering, Christian. Do you want to know what it is? Isn't that what we want? Like if we're going through something, we're just like, Why? Why, Lord? And there's probably some specific purpose, like unique to you in your, that particular situation. It's one you might find out a week, a decade. You might not find out until you go through it and you're with the Lord. But I can't tell you what God's Word teaches us 
is a purpose for your suffering, Christian, in a larger general sense. It is always. It's always to make you less satisfied with sin and with yourself and with this world right here and be more satisfied in Jesus Christ and his will for your life and the world to come. It's always the case. That's it. That's why you're going through it. There's your answer. God's word gives it to us. And there always is a through. Always. There's always a through. And there's a period for your suffering too. I can't tell you it's 10 days. It might be shorter. You, some, most of you is probably what's obviously longer. <laughs> right? But it's not forever, is it? Is what you're going through forever as a Christian? No, it can't be. <laughs> it can't be. It might be alleviated. It might come to an end. The period might be alleviated when God calls you home just like he did to these Christians here. It might come to a screeching halt when God calls you home to your reward or Jesus Christ returns for you and Revelation 21.4 becomes your beautiful reality in an instant where we read God will wipe, God himself will wipe away every tear from our eye and there'll be no more death and no more sin, no more crying, no more sorrow. There should be no more pain because the former things have all passed away and behold, the one who sits on the throne says, I make all things new. I promise you, that's the end to your suffering. It won't go on forever. And that's God's message to us this morning. And so is this in verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you a crown of life. That's the testimony Jesus wants us to have. Anybody can be faithful for a little bit. I mean, you don't even need to be a Christian to be faithful in something for a little bit. But Jesus says, be full of faith until death. And that's the testimony of a Christian. Not perfectly. <laughs> ups and downs, but we never stop trusting Jesus completely. Be full of faith until death, and I'll give you the crown of life. In the Greek, it's the word Stephanos. It's not like a crown like we think, not like that one, honestly. That's a good picture, um, but it's not. It's that crown, that, that wreath made out of like a vine that they had awarded to the victor in athletic competition, or one like a bride would wear, and both of those things uh, God uses in his word. We're called the bride of Christ, and and uh, God tells us through the Apostle Paul that we're to, to train ourselves like an athlete would and be disciplined and, and, and to strive like an athlete does to win what God holds out for us, the reward. And then he closes with a familiar phrase again. He that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you hearing God's message to you this morning? Do you want that crown? I do. I don't ever come without a cross here. A crown doesn't come then and there without a cross here and now. And Jesus says, he that overcomes shall not be hurt with a second death. That's the reward that the crown symbolizes, eternal life. The promised reward is not to be affected at all by the second death. What's the second death? Well, we have to go to Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, chapter 21, verses 7 and 8, and we'll get there eventually. That's where we find these terms, the second death. It's, it's that eternal existence in hell. And God tells us there it's for the fearful, not for those who stop fearing. It's for the fearful and unbelieving. It's for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the liars. It's, from, it's for those who, who refuse to turn from their sins and in faith trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus says here, stop being afraid. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Yours is eternal life if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Have you done that? 
If you haven't, if you never can look back at a point when, yeah, man, I turned from sin and I, I stopped trying to earn salvation by what I do or what I don't do. That's a hot mess. It's never going to happen. You, you trust in who Jesus is and what he did for you. And if you've never done that, do that right now this morning. Confess your sins. Ask Jesus to be your Savior, even as I'm speaking right now. Christian, are you afraid? Sometimes. You will be. You will be at times. And God knows that. I mean, this side of heaven, that's just part of life here. Uh, I think of uh, King David. Uh, he had, God had him pen these words in Psalm 56, 3 to us. Uh, he said, when I am afraid. He's going to say, well, I ain't never afraid as a Christian. No, he says, when I, I am afraid. But let me quote the whole thing, though. Because God tells us what to do when we are. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, and I'm not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And please understand this, Christian, the presence of fear in our lives. Um, it does not mean that you, you don't have any faith. It's just a reality here in this world. Fear visits everyone, but make sure you don't hang out long. Let him just be a visitor. Do what Jesus tells us to do here, to stop fearing. God tells us in 1 Peter 5, 7, what Andrew read earlier. Uh, this is what the Christians would do. We're to cast all our anxiety. And the idea there is to unload it. I remember in the army when I had that ridiculous 100-pound backpack. You'd be marching 25 miles, and when they call a halt, it was like, glory, hallelujah, and you pop these two straps, and that thing just fall off you. And you feel like a new man. <laughs> That's what he's talking about. Unload it to the Lord. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. It's really interesting. It's described there in that passage Andrew read in 1 Peter 5. Verse 6 says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He'll exalt you in due time. This is how you live a life of faith. It says he'll exalt you in due time, colon, casting all your cares on him. Here's how you humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Here's how you express your faith in Jesus Christ. Casting all your care on him, for he cares for you. Look, like these Christians in Smyrna, Jesus knows what you're going through. He cares about what you're going through. He knows what you're going to face Tuesday. He knows what, what's ahead, and he cares about it. And not only does he care about it, he has a purpose in it. And, and there is, I don't know how long it is, but there is a period to it. So will you echo the Apostle Paul's sentiment and tell Jesus this morning, I do, I want to know you, Lord. I want to, to know, even if it means suffering. Make me like Jesus. Test me. Give me the strength to, to go through that testing, to bear my cross here and now. So as a victor, I'll be awarded that crown of life. It will be mine then and there. I don't know if any of us will ever be called upon to die a martyr's death for Jesus, but I know we're all called to live a martyr's life. Surrendering all. Nothing held back. Just like it, it would be if we had to give our life for how life totally surrendered in love for him, his word, and his will for our lives. I ask Corinne to come to the piano. Will you obey his message to you this morning? He says, be faithful, be full of faith. Not fear, be full of faith. Be controlled by faith. Don't be controlled by fear this morning. Christian, commit to God to do that this morning. However, as God's using his word to call you to respond today, I just ask that you to obey. Will you stand? Well, let's sing this as a song of commitment to the Lord. I have decided to follow Jesus.